0: This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. Today, I'd like to speak about allocating the duty to defend between co-insurers. Since other insurance clauses usually do not prescribe how defense costs should be apportioned among insurers, courts have developed general allocation rules. When only one of two insurers is held to provide coverage, that insurer must bear the entire burden of defense. The majority view is that the insurers must share the cost of defense pro rata in the same proportion that the face amount of each policy bears to the total amount of valid and collectible insurance. When one insurer is primary and the other is excess, generally, an excess insurer is not required to contribute to the defense of the insured so long as the primary insurer is required to defend. The discussion assumes that the relationship between the insurers arises through the operation of other insurance clauses, and not by design of the insured. The considerations regarding allocation of the duty, the duty to defend where the relationship between the insurers arises by design, may differ from that when the relationship arises by coincidence. When other insurance clauses operate to make one insurer the primary insurer and the other an excess insurer, the primary insurer is generally held to have the burden of defending. Nevertheless, there are cases that suggest that in certain circumstances, insurers may owe a duty to participate in the insured's defense. There may come a point at which the potential liability of the insured is so great that the excess insurer is required to participate in the defense, despite any contractual provision disclaiming coverage of expenses covered by other policies. Most corporations, partnerships, and other policyholders with significant insurance needs purchase coverage in layers. Policyholders reasonably assume that excess insurers are obligated to pay if and when the policyholder's liability exceeds any applicable liability limits of the underlying primary and excess coverages. Courts across the country have so ruled in cases stretching back more than 80 or 100 years. In 1928, for example, the Second Circuit rejected the argument that a policyholder could not collect excess insurance unless the primary insurer paid the full limits of the primary policy, finding that result unnecessarily stringent. The Second Circuit concluded that the excess insurer had no rational interest in whether the insured collected the full amount of the primary policies so long as it, the excess insurer, was only called upon to pay such portion of the loss as was in excess of the limits of those primary policies. An excess insurer issues a policy expecting to pay only when the policyholder's liability reaches a certain threshold. From the standpoint of the excess insurer, it makes no difference whether the policyholder or the underlying insurer's pay amounts below that threshold. In 2008, for example, certain underwriters at Lloyd's and Zurich American wrote their policies so that they had no obligation to the insured until the first layers of coverage did not pay the full amount of their policy limits. They sued in the Eastern District of Michigan and the California Court of Appeal and asked the courts to declare that the policy wording limited their obligation to the insured to respond with defense or indemnity if the underlying insurer actually paid its limits. The insurers successfully argued to two different courts that the language in their excess policy negated coverage if underlying insurers do not pay the full amount of applicable underlying liability limits. Even if the policyholder's total liability exceeds the underlying limits, and the language of the policy was unambiguous. When the policyholder settled with underlying insurers for less than applicable limits, because there was a question of coverage, the policyholder paid the shortfall from its own funds. The policyholder then turned to the excess insurers for coverage of amounts exceeding the underlying limits. The excess insurers successfully argued that they owed nothing, nothing, because the clear and unambiguous language of the policy limited the obligation of the excess insurer. Insurers assert that the same result applies where an underlying insurer fails to pay full policy limits for any other reason, Including insolvency or other financial problems. For example, the Lloyds policy provided: quote, underwriters shall be liable only after the insurers under each of the underlying policies have paid or have been held liable to pay the full amount of the underlying limit of liability. The court concluded that the policy language was interpreted in the context of the nature of Lloyd's policy as an excess insurance policy. The California Supreme Court interpreted the scope of pollution exclusion in light of historical purposes of pollution exclusions and comprehensive general liability policies generally the court found that the insured's objectively reasonable expectations were that primary insurance would have to be exhausted before excess coverage would attach. In doing so, it recognized that excess or secondary coverage is coverage where, under the terms of the policy, liability attaches only after a predetermined amount of primary coverage has been exhausted Close quote. when a primary insurer in New Mexico reached a settlement for one point six five million dollars, the insured sought credit for the full five million guaranteed by its policy so that it could tap the excess policies. The court concluded that there was nothing in the excess policy that precludes an underlying insurer, once it has been held liable to pay, from settling for an amount less than the policy limits and being credited for the balance. The New Mexico Supreme Court noted that other courts have permitted such settlements, although under different policy language. Excess insurers argue that the policyholders can avoid the consequences of the Qualcomm and Comerica cases by refraining from settling with underlying insurers for less than the underlying limits. Concerns arise because the underlying insurer may become insolvent. There is a long history of courts holding that the insolvency of a lower-layer insurer will not excuse the payment obligations of an upper-layer insurer. Insurers have argued, however, that regardless of the reason the underlying insurer does not pay, its full applicable limits, overlying excess insurers may be relieved of their coverage obligations. These cases are a particular concern given the predictions that any economic slowdown may result in increasing insurer insolvencies. Policyholders should not assume that they can settle with underlying insurers for less than the amount of any applicable underlying limits without putting excess coverage at risk. Policyholders with pending claims must carefully review their policies for exhaustion language and should consult coverage counsel before considering settlement of a suit or claim. Policyholders seeking new or renewal policies should seriously consider whether the price of the coverage is sufficient to provide the coverage needed even with the limitations created by the language found in decisions called Comerica and Qualcomm. When a loss occurs that is the fault of the named insured, the injured party can exploit the situation and hire an attorney who will try to obtain the named insured's assets, insurance, equipment, real property, cars, trucks, bank accounts, payroll accounts, and other property. The extra dollars paid for excess insurance policies will protect the named insured's assets and give him, her or it, and the additional insureds a modicum of peace and confidence in entering into the construction project. A good risk manager, insurance agent, or insurance broker will advise the potential insured on the proper limits that should be carried. If the insured has assets that can be reached by a judgment, the insured should carry limits equal to or greater than the insured's assets. This may require an umbrella or excess policy that pays up to $100 million or more over the basic CGL limits purchased. If the insured is involved in a major construction project, that insured may be required to buy several layers of coverage with primary insurance policy and several layers of excess over the primary coverage. Builders and their insurers are fully aware that losses due to defects in construction do not usually fall within easily defined periods of time. Often the losses occur over a lengthy period, with individual units in a multi-unit development failing at different times. When the builder has several different insurers covering that period of time, apportionment between the insurers is often difficult. For example, a general contractor of a single-family home or group of homes, asked the Minnesota Supreme Court to resolve the dispute that arose between insurers and their insured in Wooddale Builders v. Maryland Casualty. In Wooddale, the contractor sued to determine the obligation of its CGL insurers to defend and indemnify it against multiple claims of defective construction resulting from water intrusion, to homes constructed from 1991 to 1999. Between November 1990 and November 2002, five insurers provided CGL coverage to Wooddale. Wooddale did not have coverage for water intrusion damage after 2002. The parties agreed that the appropriate method for apportionment of liability among insurers was pro-rata by time on the risk and that the starting point for the liability allocation period for each claim was the closing date on the purchase of the home. The parties disagreed, however, about the appropriate end date for the liability allocation period as well as the appropriate method by which to allocate defense costs. In the court's view, the question raised several issues on the possible methods to use to apportion the cost of defense and indemnity, such as pro rata by time on the risk, pro rata by time on the risk allocation method, pro rata time on risk with uninsured period liability allocation, and other variations. The court refused to allocate defense costs among consecutive liable insurers according to the same methodology as indemnity costs. Rather, it held that when the pro rata by time on the risk method applies to the allocation of damages and insurers participate in providing a defense to a common insured, defense costs are apportioned equally among insurers whose policies are triggered. The court rejected a time on the risk allocation for defense costs, and rather it concluded that the best approach to resolving the issue was to have a rule that encourages insurers to resolve promptly the duty to defend issue. This video was adapted from my book, Construction Defects and Insurance, Volume 4, the fourth part of a eight-part treatise on construction defects and insurance, which is available as both Kindle books and paperbacks from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be interesting or useful to you and your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, my blog, and my substack filings so that you can learn about future videos and future blog postings. Thank you for your attention.